0: Scripture lesson this morning, Genesis chapter 34, beginning at verse 1 and reading to verse 31. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and laid her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. He had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said, to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a great, for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city, and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters." Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city." On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure, and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword, and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city, because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the house, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You brought trouble on me by making me sink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? The word of the Lord Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we again thank you for your word and pray that you would direct us in it now, that your spirit would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that understand and pursue your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. testimony all the Church have today in society. Who do we need to be as Christian, given the cultural landscape as before? Some of you may be familiar with the Westboro Baptist group that readily protests all sorts of events, whether concerts of various popular artists, funerals of dead soldiers, abortion doctors, or Mormons, as well as various events promoting homosexuality and same-sex marriages and so forth. And inevitably, these protesters are holding up signs with inflammatory statements of one kind or another, and all in the name of promoting the gospel and the truth of God's word. And while there may be an element of truth in some of the things that they're saying, the way in which they comport themselves is problematic. This leads us to rightly ask the question of whether or not they're helping or hindering the gospel. Surely they're hindering it through their actions, speech, and overall demeanor. And, of course, professing Christians acting in this manner is nothing new in the history of the Church. There are plenty of other examples when the Church has hindered her message because of the means by which the message was conveyed or the actions that accompany the message. And given the present circumstances with which we are faced, the manner in which we handle ourselves as the Church, the way in which we convey our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is important and admittedly can be challenging calling for an extra measure of wisdom. Well, Genesis 34 comes to us today to challenge us on this very point and admonishes us to take stock of what we do and to consider whether or not we end up distorting the gospel as a result. Genesis 34 follows chapter 33, where the encounter with Esau at last took place. Last week we noted some of the surprising elements in that text. And also the fact that Jacob's wrestling with God in chapter 32 and the the prayers prayed were answered in the miraculous transformation of Esau. To what degree Esau's heart was changed, we can't know for sure. But his demeanor toward Jacob and his family seemed genuine and sincere, and the brothers parted on good terms. Then in verses 18 to 20, we noted that the older translation seems to be the better rendering that Jacob came to Salem, the city of Shechem. And Salem is related to the word for peace, Shalom. Shalom. So Jacob camped before the city, bought land there, and built an altar. Like Grandpa Abraham, he's establishing the worship of Yahweh in that place. Jacob is the head of the priestly people. He's also a king of sorts, having prevailed with God and men. He's matured to that point. And all of that sets the stage for what takes place in chapter 34. And and maybe you already noticed, but Jacob, well, he isn't really a main character in this chapter. What we begin to see in this, in this chapter and in the, the chapters to come of Genesis is that there's a greater emphasis on Jacob's sons leading up to the Joseph section of, of, of Genesis, which begins in chapter 37. If we, if we think of, th- of it this way, in Genesis chapters 12 to 50, there are basically three main characters, Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. I realize that's a bit of a generalization, but it's interesting and helpful to think about. And it also seems to reflect the biblical pattern of priests king and prophet. Abraham is primarily priestly, building altars throughout Canaan and given the sign of circumcision to mark out the priestly people. Jacob is kingly. He's a shepherd and has to make hard choices and decisions and has to rule over his sons, over the budding nation of Israel. The head of a nation is a king. Joseph is prophetic. He ends up in Egypt giving counsel to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He interprets dreams and is let in on God's plans for the world, for the nations. Prophets mainly came on the scene in Israel's history when the monarchy was established. But the greater volume of prophetic ministry was related to Israel's interaction with or incorporation into the surrounding nations, such as the Babylonian exile. And again, this is this very general, very big picture, but, but helpful to think about in order to connect things together and see the consistent scriptural patterns which actually even carries into the New Testament. The first three Gospels follow this pattern of priest, king, prophet, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which also correspond to the four faces of the cherubim, ox, lion, eagle. And we add man to that as well, and that's John's Gospel. As is often the case, the whole Bible comes back to the book of Genesis. Well, let's turn our attention to the details of chapter 34. And before we even get to Jacob's sons, we're presented with his daughter. And in verses 1 through 4, we observe the defilement of Dinah. Scholars estimate that Dinah is probably about 15 years old at this point. So there's some passage of time between the end of chapter 33 and the beginning of chapter 34. Also, it's very likely that Joseph has been sold into slavery by this point. Genesis is not written in a strictly chronological fashion. It's quite possible that Dinah wasn't born until after Jacob's return to the promised land. So it's important not to read chapters 33 and 34 as happening in immediate chronological succession with one another. Jacob has been living around these people for a while now, worshiping at the altar and having a witness in the community. Dinah is introduced to us in verse 1 as the daughter of Jacob born to Leah. And we're told that she went out to see the daughters of the land. There doesn't seem to be anything inherently wrong with that, as some commentators want to purport. It's reading too much into the text, I think. But as the scene unfolds, you probably notice the attack on the bride that's taking place. A taking of what is forbidden. And the language that's used here we hear from earlier parts of Genesis. Then in particular the language of seeing and taking. The, the ESV reads seized. Well, this word for take is used throughout the chapter. Seeing and taking reminds us of Eve in the garden. But there's also a role reversal of sorts of Genesis 6. And the sons of God taking the daughters of men for their wives. Here is a son of men taking a daughter of God. Shechem sees, takes, lies with, and humiliates Dinah. This episode also reminds us of the occasions when Abraham and Isaac protected their brides through righteous deception. And the violation of their wives was prevented. The attack on the bride comes via the threat of intermarriage. Here Dinah is violated. Shechem acts like a pagan, which shouldn't surprise us. But then notice that Shechem is drawn to Dinah, that he loves her and speaks to the heart. And it's interesting to note how this contrasts quite sharply with the, the record of Ammon's, uh, Amnon's rape of Tamar that we read about in 2 Samuel 13. Amnon immediately despised and rejected Tamar. Whereas Shechem wants to marry Dinah. There's a sense in which he wants to make things right. And it's important to understand this because what's the last thing Simeon and Levi declare in verse 31? Should he treat our sister like a harlot, like a prostitute? You can make an argument that after the act of violating Dinah, Shechem didn't treat her like a harlot. This is not a one-time fling. And this is, this is a significant detail that factors into our understanding of the chapter as we'll see later on. So in verse 4, Shechem tells his father Hamor, take for me the girl for my wife. There, there again, there's that terminology, that language. Well, that leads us into verses 5 through 12 where we hear the proposal of Hamor, but are told Jacob's response first. Now Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. A couple of things first. A couple of things. First of all, Jacob hasn't suddenly turned into a passive wimp, nor does his holding his peace mean that he doesn't care for Dinah. Again, once, once again, commentators want to read their modern sensibilities in the text without considering the bigger picture. Jacob holding his peace is the wise thing to do until his sons arrive. Again, Jacob is acting like a king. He's a king for all intents and purposes. And for him to react rashly affects other people, his sons first and foremost. So he's smart to wait for them to come back from the field before acting. Also, interestingly enough, in one scholar's structuring of the book of Genesis, chapter 34 corresponds back to chapter 26, when Isaac is in Gerar, the land of the Philistines. What does Isaac do there? Well, basically, he keeps his peace. Jacob does likewise here. But then we're compelled to ask how the sons act in response to what's happened. As we go on to see, they don't keep the peace. Furthermore, in the book of Genesis, we observe that brothers are the primary negotiators and protectors for sisters when suitors come calling and not fathers. I realize that can very, sound very strange to us, but it's, it's true when we look at the biblical evidence. Jacob waits because the handling of this pri- will primarily fall to Dinah's brothers, two of them being Simeon and Levi, as the story later reveals. So Hamor and Shechem go out to Jacob to speak with him. He lives outside of the city, so they go out there. Jacob's sons had come in from the field, and as soon as they heard what happened, they were rightly indignant and very angry. And notice the, that the latter part of notice the latter part of verse seven because he Shechem had done this outrageous thing in Israel. This is the first reference to Israel as a nation. It's a new nation, a small nation, but a nation nonetheless. And the only daughter, the only sister, has been violated. A thing that ought not to have been done. Now the anger of the brothers is not only understandable because of Shechem's act, but also because they're probably angry that they weren't there to protect their sister. So maybe they're feeling some guilt as a result. But there's an important term that's used here in verse 5, and then again in verses 13 and 17. Defiled. That's how Shechem's actions are characterized. He defiled Dinah. What's significant about that specific term is that this is the only time it's used in Genesis, but elsewhere in Scripture, it's used to refer to ceremonial defilement. Dinah has been made unclean by coming into contact with Shechem. It's not irreversible. It can be remedied. And the text is going to go on to show how that comes about. In verses 8 through 10, Hamor pitches his proposal, and then in verses 11 to 12, Shechem enthusiastically speaks up to strengthen his case to Dinah, to Dinah's father and brothers. So what's at the heart of Haman's proposal? Intermarriage, an alliance of nations after a fashion. Remember, Shechem is a prince, which means Hamor is a king, and by marrying Dinah, Jacob's only daughter, a bunch of new possibilities would be opened up. Perhaps we can imagine the conversation going something like this. Second, my son is head over heels in love with your daughter, so give her to him to be his wife. In fact, you give your daughters and take our daughters in marriage. Even more, we'll both benefit economically, opening trade throughout the land. Come dwell with us, mentioned two times. Acquire land and be business partners with us and and we'll, we'll get wealthy together. And that's the basic gist of what he's saying. But Jacob and his sons know that they have to keep a certain amount of separation from the people, that they have a different calling in the land. Hamor may be thinking or hinting that Jacob and his sons would be absorbed into his people. Shechem jumps in and attempts to sweeten the deal even more and and seems genuine in seeking favor in the eyes of Jacob and the the sons and, and, and basically offers to give anything in order to marry Dinah. He's willing to pay a great bride price, a great mohar that would belong to Dinah. And he's willing to give gifts, which would have been money paid to the brothers for Dinah's hand in marriage. Again, he declares he's willing to give anything in order for Dinah to become his wife. Well, in verses 13 and 24, the brothers respond and name their price. And the price is circumcision. And notice in verses 13 to 17 that the brothers proclaimed the gospel to the Hivites. For Shechem to marry Dinah and their other men to marry their daughters, the Hivites had to be circumcised. And what we have to understand here is that neither side believed this, that this was, neither side believed that this was a merely physical procedure. This was a religious ritual in which the Hivites would be accepting the terms of God's covenant, The covenant of circumcision that God established with Abraham back in chapter 17. In short, they were telling the Hivites that they must convert and submit to the God of Israel in order for there to be this intimate of a relationship between them. Jacob and his sons could do all sorts of business and trade with uncircumcised people. Later in the history of Israel, people who were outside of Israel could participate in particular sacrifices and feasts with Israel. But if someone desired to marry into Israel, he had to take upon himself the mission of Israel. Israel was called out to be separate for a particular purpose, for a particular mission. Those lines couldn't be violated. Therefore, the Hivites had to agree to take upon this special vocation and become a part of Israel. This, of course, included worshiping the God of Israel. This vocation, which was at the heart of this covenant, was marked by circumcision. These people were cut off from the world for the world. That is, circumcision was unto life or for the purpose of bringing life to the world. Now, this is the counter-proposal from the sons of Jacob. But they're acting more like grandsons of Laban and that they make this proposal deceitfully now, in, in years past, I've regularly defended the use of holy deception by the patriarchs as well as Rebecca, instructing Jacob to trick Isaac uh, in order that he might receive the blessing. Or in the case of G- uh, Jael, tricking Sisera in Judges 4 and then crushing his head with a tent peg. And these are examples of the bride combating the serpent that, uh, that, is, that are consistent with the principle of an eye for an eye and using holy deception as a means of preservation. The serpent deceived Eve in the garden. Therefore, Eve uses deception against the serpent, which is fitting. It's a tactic of war, and it's one of the ways in which the bride fights the holy war. But here in Genesis 34, the sons of Jacob are wrong to deceive. Why? What's so different about this circumstance? Because this is a deceit that actually abuses the faith. Jacob's sons are out for personal vengeance even after the Hivites agree to do the right thing. Circumcision removes reproach, and by being circumcised, Shechem's reproach would be removed. We need to remember that as circumcision was one way to remove reproach, the other was total annihilation, all-out holy war, which we see later when Israel conquers Canaan under Joshua. Further, notice that the organ that Shechem used to defile Dinah receives a wound in circumcision. This is an application of the eye-for-eye principle we later read about in the law. Shechem deflowered Dinah, and so he gets wounded, and justice is served. But then notice this all-important clause in verse 15, in the counter-proposal from the sons of Jacob. You and every male among you have to become like one of us in circumcision, and then we'll give and take daughters, dwell with you, and become one people. We'll all be one big happy family, but if you don't agree to these terms, then no deal. We'll take our daughter, Dinah, is the represent, re- representative daughter for the nation of Israel, and go home. Well, in verses 18 to 24, there's a bit of surprise in relation to the proposal offered by the brothers. And that's that Hamor and Shechem accept. And they convince all of the men of the city, probably all of the men of fighting age, to go along with this. Hamor and Shechem don't waste any time. They don't delay, especially Shechem, because he delighted in Dinah. And he was the most honored in his father's house. He was held in high regard. They go to the gate of the city. Why? Because that's where the elders of the city would congregate. That's where official matters of business and law were taken care of. So that's where they need to go to pitch this offer to the other men. It's interesting to note that in their relaying to the other men the proposal, there's no mention of what's really driving this deal. That Shechem wants Dinah. Perhaps we shouldn't make too much of the silence on that point, but Hamar and Shechem present the entire proposal along the lines of the economic and national advantages the Hivites would obtain, echoing what we heard earlier. They also argue that since they're already at peace with them, there's no reason for them to believe that wouldn't continue. So clearly, Jacob's witness has been a good one thus far. They've been at peace with these people. And when you think about it, it was pretty smart of them not to mention Dinah because the men of the city could simply say, well, too bad. We don't want to go through circumcision just because you're head over heels for Jacob's daughter. Shechem and Hamor leave the strictly personal aspect out, but the sons of Jacob made it an all or nothing deal. Again, for Shechem to get Dinah, all of the males had to be circumcised to a shrewd clause in the deal. And again, it's... It's, it's a little surprising that all the men of the city agreed this because circumcision later in life is a painful experience. But they do so, as we read in verse 24. And what this means is that the Hivites are cleansed from defilement and that they're in a very real sense, they're, they're now Israelites. Well, that brings us to the last section in verses 25 to 31 where we read about the decimation of the city. Verse 25, the third day. Symbolically a day of deliverance, of rescue, of resurrection, and new creation. But that gets turned upside down because of the deceit of the brothers. The third day is the great, uh, day of greatest pain following circumcision. It was often accompanied by fever, so these men are in their most vulnerable state. And then notice the details. Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. The Hivites trusted Jacob's sons, and they're proving to be betrayers. They kill Hamor and Shechem with the sword, and then they took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went out. Back in verse 17, they told Hamar and Shechem, if they wouldn't be circumcised, we'll take our sister and be gone. The Hivites complied, but are betrayed by Simeon and Levi, who come and take their sister anyway. Then in verse 17, the implication seems to be that other sons of Jacob join Simeon and Levi in plundering the city. And the reason given is the defilement of their sister. And they descend like vultures upon the dead and helpless. But what's the rule of holy war? How is defilement dealt with in that case? Total annihilation, everything offered up to the Lord. But what do the sons of Jacob do here? They take the plunder for themselves. The flocks, herds, donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. They took all their wealth and their little ones and their wives and captured them and plundered them. They completely conquer them, city and field. But they shouldn't have kept the plunder. It should have been all burned or destroyed. So Jacob's response in verse 30 is justified. It's not the the whining of a scared old man. In a matter of days, Jacob's sons have undone all of the work that he'd put in for years in living with peace living at peace with these people. Instead of being an aroma of the gospel in the land, Jacob's sons have caused them all to become a stench to the inhabitants of the land. And the sons have put everything at risk because their numbers are relatively few. And if the Canaanites band together, the nation of Israel in its infant stages could be wiped out. For Jacob and his household to be destroyed means the priestly people are destroyed. The sons haven't thought through the consequences of their actions. They don't see the bigger picture. They act rashly, unfaithfully. In verse 31, they seem to get the last word in. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? No, Shechem shouldn't have done what he did. But the consequences for violating a woman are not wiping out an entire city. The punishment that Simeon, Levi and company inflict doesn't fit the crime. Jewish rabbis and other scholars had defended Simeon and Levi, justifying their actions. But that's fairly easily, easily refuted. Because in Genesis 49, verses 5 and 7, we're told Jacob's parting words, his last words to them, the, the blessing he gives to them. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it's fierce, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Levi will eventually repent and be made into the priestly line and the Levites. Simeon will only be preserved when he is later absorbed into Judah, and has to share an inheritance with his younger brother. But these brothers, these brothers are redeemable, but they lose position in the family as a result of their actions. Well, as we find out in the opening verses of chapter 35, God moves Jacob from that area. But Jacob and his household have been made to stink in the land as a result of the actions of his sons. The people can no longer trust him. And neither can they trust Jacob's God because as far as the people are now concerned, Jacob's God is a God that brings people into covenant with them, covenant with him and then murders them. He promises life but then gives them death. So what are, what are some principles and application for our own lives from this, this text and this, well, very interesting and even perplexing story? Or first, let us be wary of religious pretext for the purpose of personal vengeance. The situation with Simeon and Levi was pretty cut and dried as there were dead bodies lying all over the place that were the evidence of their betrayal by the edge of the sword. But how, how might we do this Well, perhaps by the blade within our mouths, our tongues, whether by what we've said or written, where we sought to destroy a brother or sister for reasons of personal vengeance. You know, we have to be careful of turning personal hurts, even valid ones, into God's license for us to vindicate under the guise of a crusade for the truth. And in cases when you've been wronged and the person comes and deals with their sin, deals righteously with their defilement, seeking your forgiveness and the restoration and the relationship, then the matter's over. The, The relationship is restored and the sin shouldn't be brought up again. And husbands and wives, we need to remember this when dealing with our sins against one another. We need to remember this as parents when dealing with the sins of our children. And siblings, you need to remember this when your brother or sister sins against you and seeks restoration. And parents need to help their children forgive properly and be restored and move on in forgiveness. Or perhaps you have a friend at uh, or someone at school that's wronged you and you want revenge for what they've done. We well, need to be very careful with that. Not let that fester, not allow that to cause you to gossip about him or her. All in the name of truth or in being right. It could be that you are in the right, but then how you handle it puts you in the wrong. In part, basically what we have before us in Genesis 34 is an example or application of Paul's admonition in Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The apostle rightly qualifies and says, If possible... Which means that there are cases when it's not possible. Especially if there are people um, people promoting what is unlawful and unrighteous. You probably shouldn't be at peace with them. The church and Christians aren't you know, simply to be doormats. But your general demeanor and disposition should be one of peace, of seeking peace. Even in imitation of the Lord Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, the greater Solomon. Whose incarnation was an announcement of peace to the whole world. And second and and lastly, from Genesis 34, we should understand, don't be a stinker. Um, Or to say it positively, remember that you're called to smell a certain way before the world. Paul in 2 Corinthians 2 declares, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? So, so don't don't be a stinker for the wrong reasons. You know, don't be a, a zealot in the wrong way. Granted, as believers, we recognize that the gospel ministry, that our very lives as Christians lived unto the Lord and according to His word, can look, smell, and taste like death to those who are perishing. And there's a sense in which we rightly disturbed their so-called peace by proclaiming the truth when they want to call evil good and good evil. But we need to be sure that we don't adorn the gospel with death in the way that we live. We're to smell good before God and those who are being saved. And all, all of this is sacrificial language. Sacrifices smell good, roasting all the, on the altar, you know, much like um, a good barbecue pit or something. But those on the outside of the tabernacle or temple would smell the blood that ran outside in the gutters. We're supposed to take the good smell to the world and bring life. We're supposed to do that in a way that's consistent with the way that God has called us to live as living sacrifices. Loving others, forgiving others, and so forth. We aren't to make the sacrifice stink on purpose. So again, don't be a stinker. The church of Jesus has always had and will always have problems. We don't always adorn the gospel properly. But let us be careful as a church that we don't take our personal hurts from past or present wrongs, legitimate or merely perceived, and use God's gospel as a pretext for our personal revenge. And let us readily give ourselves to cultivating the aroma of the gospel in our lives and home and church. I'm sure, I know I've asked this before, but it bears repeating. What does your life smell like? What does your home smell like? What do we want to smell like as a church? May we as living stones who are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let us pursue holiness in our personal life. Let us be zealous in what is good. How we act and speak, how we dress, that's different from the world, that's distinct and yet still attractive, that testifies to the fact that we're a people set apart who seek to beautify the gospel in every way. And there's been a full-core press for some time now from the powers that be to attempt to completely redefine reality, whether marriage, whether what it means to be a man or a woman, etc. Then we need to be all the more resolved to live lives full of truth, beauty, and goodness as defined by God's Word. And in our pursuing such lives, which are ultimately peaceful, because they're the lives that God would have us to live, then the world will notice. Your neighbors will see that something's different, maybe even something that they want deep down in their being, and will ask you about what makes you different. So be ready. Be ready to give an answer with gentleness and respect. For the reason of the hope that is in you, unafraid and untroubled, to the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we again thank you for your word, and we thank you for the way in which you impress the truth upon us through stories. We thank you for Genesis chapter 34, and may our faith grasp more fully the life that we are called to live in Christ, for having studied this, your word together. Continue to impress it upon our hearts and lives. May it bear fruit unto your glory and for the furtherance of your kingdom in this world and for the building up of your church. Indeed, make us more faithful in our witness to the world and in our lives lived in love and forgiveness with one another. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen.